Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Manya, who did you speak with this week? Sefi, Daniel Schwamenthal, director of AJC's Transatlantic Institute, joined me from Brussels to talk about what it's like for Jews living in Belgium, where there have been a constant string of anti-Semitic episodes and officials have been loath to condemn. Sefi, who did you speak with? I spoke with Ambassador Matan Vilnai about the relationship between his country, Israel, and the country in which he served, China. Sounds fascinating. Let's do it. Last week, Sophie Wilmes became the first female and first Jewish prime minister of Belgium. A mother of four, Wilmes is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent and lost ancestors during the Holocaust. Only recently did she embrace her Jewish heritage. She will serve as a caretaking prime minister while the country establishes a coalition. But as anti-Semitism reemerges across the European continent in different forms, Belgium stands out. Earlier this spring, a parade in Alst featured a float shaped like an Orthodox Jewish man with a rat on his shoulder clutching bags of money, and the accompanying soundtrack was a tune about Jewish greed. In August, a column in a major Belgian newspaper accusing Jews of stealing Palestinian land went a step further, saying they also have ugly noses. And in September, a Socialist Party alderman and artist, who was very proud of his art, presented his painting of a swastika at a Brussels art gallery, emblazoned by the words, And God Created Hitler. What makes Belgium stand out is the lack of condemnation of these events by anyone outside the Jewish community. Here to talk about what it's like for Jews living in Belgium and why politicians have been loath to condemn these episodes of anti-Semitism is Daniel Schwamenthal, director of AJC's Brussels-based Transatlantic Institute. Daniel, welcome. Hello. So first, Daniel, did I leave anything off the list? Have there been other troubling expressions of anti-Semitism in Belgium? And did the episodes I mentioned, did they all rise to the same level of concern? Well, you definitely hit uh, all the most important recent uh, public events. There are, of course, anti-Semitic incidents that may not be published in the newspaper that happen maybe in in Jewish schools, bullying, uh, insults and threats on the Internet, etc., as is the case, unfortunately, uh, in many other, particularly West European countries. Um, And I think this collection, these three incidents, uh, first of all, show a phenomenon that we see sort of the merging of anti-Semitism from the different sources. Um, If we look at anti-Semitism, it comes not only from what many people believe the traditional far right, but the far left, which is often centered around Israel, and also Islamist political anti-Semitism. And we see here, you know, the accusations against Israel that have anti-Semitic undertones, and then, of course, the more traditional idea of anti-Semitic iconography, what would almost say we think of the floats in Alts. And what strikes us indeed, as you've noted, is that there is a sort of uh, lack of public outrage and and very um, not even defensive, but almost dismissive responses from those who are directly responsible for this. So for instance, the carnival 
floats in alts. The organizers simply claimed this is part of the general edgy humor mm -hmm. and that there's nothing potentially specifically anti-Semitic about it. Um, and the sign language a video that was posted, well, uh, the university just simply said, well, you know, these are the signs that are being used. Apparently, there are a number of different signs in the Belgian sign language to signify Jews. And that's simply one of them, and they have to be complete, of course, not thinking that maybe they want to leave this one out, and maybe there ought to be a, a general revision of the Belgian sign language. But it points also what we've seen over the last 20 years when we as AJC uh, first pointed out that there's a rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, and when at that time many European leaders across the nation simply didn't want to listen and didn't want to hear, that we now see such an accumulation of incidents that we see a sort of a normalization almost mm. that, uh, you know, I would suggest that the lack of public outrage is partly the result that it has become now so common that, you know, a taboo, once a taboo has been broken, it ceases to be one. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make clear to listeners, you were talking about the inclusion of a, of a hook-nosed gesture for the word Jew in the official Flemish Sign Language Dictionary. Right. And that was actually, I did leave that one off the list. And, and that is another troubling episode that has kind of normalized this kind of anti-Semitic language, even sign language. Well, tell me, what is it like to be Jewish in Belgium? What is Jewish life like there, given this kind of shadow of normalized anti-Semitic rhetoric? Mm. It is actually... Uh, very similar to Jewish life, let's say, in neighboring France and uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands. There are degrees of shades of differences, but generally, you know, uh, Jewish institutions have to be protected by police. And, and in Belgium, since the uh, last terrorist attacks, they are being protected by Belgian military because the police is simply overwhelmed with the work they have to do in the fight against general terrorism, mm -hmm. um, not just specific anti-Jewish terrorism. If we look at the recent survey by the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency, which surveyed Jews in, in 12 EU countries, uh, representing some 90% of European Jews, uh, there is a clear picture of a dramatic rise in the perception of, of anti-Semitism from already high levels. And Belgium generally is among the top three countries in, in most of the categories of the questions asked, both in terms of simple perception and, and experience of whether they've experienced recent anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, and also when it comes to the question of whether they, um, you know, hide occasionally their Jewish identity mm -hmm. or avoid uh, Jewish institutions out of fear. So def definitely Belgium uh, belongs, unfortunately, among a top category of countries in Europe. But as I said, you know, it's not fundamentally different from France, Germany, Holland, Sweden or Great Britain. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about the edgy humor of the Alst Parade, and it reminded me of a comment that uh, labor leader Jeremy Corbyn made, um, British labor leader, talking about how Zionists just don't understand the irony, British irony. 
And I'm curious if Corbyn were to become prime minister, many people fear that British Jews will leave. Do Belgian Jews want to stay? I think we have a similar issue here. First of all, we're coming back to Corbyn. He didn't specifically refer to Zionists. Uh, He spoke of people who have been living here for hundreds of years, clearly simply talking about the Jewish community. And I would say that I felt particularly insulted of all the anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist tropes. The idea that Jews have no sense of humor, I think, is the most hurtful one, almost. Yeah, Um, British Zionists is what he was referring (laughs) to, right? British Jews or British Zionists who have lived here for many years. It was a little unclear, you know, but he certainly referred to people who have been living here for hundreds Mm -hmm. of years. And there is no acute figure such as Corbyn, luckily, uh, about to become a prime minister. I mean, Corbyn really is in a league of his own in the sense that here we have in Great Britain a situation where a mainstream party has been overtaken by a really violent anti Semites, and where everything has now become a cesspool, what may have started with violent anti-Zionism, Corbyn himself, you know, calling uh, Hezbollah and Hamas his friends and so Mm -hmm. forth, is now a cesspool of all sorts of anti-Semitism. In addition to the general also concerns that you have in the United Kingdom, you you have a very specific acute concern about Corbyn becoming prime minister. We don't have that situation here in Belgium, but there is and has been for years a general threat perception here and that many people in Belgium generally have contemplated leaving Belgium out of fear, out of concerns about rising anti-Semitism. I don't know really families in Belgium who haven't at some point or the other really contemplated leaving the country. And particularly, I think um, what is striking is that people are really concerned about the children, uh, that even if they believe, you know, that they are still going to be okay, particularly if one discusses with Jewish families, you know, what will the next 10, 20 years bring us? What will our children experience? I think the concerns are are much higher. So the expectation uh, definitely is rather widespread that things are rather going to get worse than better. So that brings us back to the election, albeit temporary, of Prime Minister Wilmes. I mean, does that put Belgian Jews at ease to any degree? To the extent that I can really measure it, I'm doubtful. You know, as you have said in your intro, she sort of recently only really discovered or or acknowledged her Jewish heritage. She is not somebody who is really a prominent member in any way of the Jewish community. I'm not aware. I don't know if she's a member at all of the Jewish community. So so in that sense, she's a very private and it sort of sounds much more complicated story. This is certainly not uh, the story of a proud, open, prominent Jewish figure becoming prime minister. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, I don't think that her appointment, uh, she wasn't elected, It's, it's a caretaking government that at least in my view, ought to put anyone at ease that this is therefore an indication that, you know, anti-Semitism is not an issue. Um, so certainly I would not consider it a reason to be, you know, at ease. Okay. I guess as a caretaker, what could she do to put Belgian Jews at ease? What can a prime minister do to tackle this problem? 
It is difficult to say whether a caretaking prime minister can do much, uh, you know, in terms of uh, decision-making power. Generally, what I would advise, um, not just uh, Belgian prime ministers, but prime ministers and government leaders throughout Europe, is first of all to really fully acknowledge the problem and to not deny it, and to acknowledge that the problem comes from many sources. It's fairly easy to get solidarity, not just from politicians, but from society at large, when anti-Semitism comes from the far right, as we have recently seen in Halle in Germany, when right-wing terrorists attacked a synagogue Mm -hmm. and killed two bystanders who happened to be not Jewish. So it is very important to really for leaders in Europe to acknowledge that we have a problem also from radical Muslims and from the far left. And these are the two issues that therefore deserve particular attention, particularly on the far left, when it's centered around Israel, when it's hiding as so-called criticism of Israel, but really is a demonization of Israel, the denial of its right to even exist, is simply treating Israel as a Jew among the nations and is a form of anti-Semitism. This is still a battle that we have to win. And once this is acknowledged, we need to see the concrete implementation of policies on how to tackle this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, uh, I don't see real evidence throughout Europe where definitely leaders generally have become much more responsible in, in terms of recognizing the threats, but they're still far behind in devising very concrete, comprehensive policies to tackle them. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked you what Prime Minister Wilmes can do. What is AJC and the Transatlantic Institute doing to address some of these issues? Well, we are working in, on exactly the, the issues that I, I just described primarily um, making sure that all forms of uh, anti-Semitism are recognized as such. Uh, There is a very important tool called the IRA Working Definition of Anti-Semitism. IRA stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, where some 33 countries are members, including most of the EU countries. And they created a working definition of anti-Semitism that includes these sort of new modern forms of anti-Semitism that center around Israel, you know, that identifies the demonization of Israel as anti-Semitic or holding Jews collectively responsible for Israel or for Israel's actions, both real and imagined. Um, And we have been really at the forefront on pushing for EU leaders to accept and to endorse it. And indeed, two years ago, the European Parliament endorsed it. Last year, the European Council, which is where all the 28 member states got together to come together, and that's called the European Council, and then they come together either as foreign ministers or budget ministers, depending on on the issue. And in this particular case, it were the home ministers who endorsed this definition and encouraged all member states who haven't done so yet to really adopt it. And this is something that we continue working on throughout, not just in Brussels, but my colleagues throughout Europe, to encourage governments to adopt it. And then the crucial issue, the next step is, as I said, to really implement it. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea is to use this definition and sensitize and educate teachers, policemen, social workers, etc., people who engage society at large so that they identify, recognize, 
that these are forms of anti-Semitism, because if we don't even recognize it, then obviously we can't fight it. Right. And they're less likely to shrug their shoulders like they're doing in Belgium. Exactly. Daniel Schwamenthal, thank you so much for joining us and taking us into Belgium to get a, a glimpse of what it is like there. Thank you so much. My pleasure. What has Matan Vilnai not done? He was deputy commander of Operation Thunderbolt, Israel's 1976 mission to free the airline passengers being held hostage in Entebbe, Uganda. He rose to the rank of major general in the IDF. He was elected to the Knesset four times and served as a government minister under several different prime ministers. And... From 2012 to 2017, he was Israel's ambassador to China, a crucial role at a critical period as China rose in prominence on the world stage. I sat down recently in the People of the Pod studios with Ambassador Vilnai to discuss Israel's ties to China and what they mean for the future of the startup nation. Matan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Israel and China, on the one hand, are both these kind of ancient civilizations. And on the other hand, they're fairly new countries. Israel, of course, was founded in 1948. Uh, The People's Republic of China was established in 1949. And another thing they have in common is that neither of them kind of received universal recognition from other countries around the world, at least initially. When did the two of them establish formal relations and what has that relationship looked like? When China became the People's Republic of China, it was the 1st of October, 1949. And no one recognized China. In the Middle East, one state, the state of Israel. Hmm. And you have to remember that we were then, as today, under the U.S. umbrella. And not even one state from under this umbrella recognized China. Only Israel. And then came the recognition of the Arab world, but we were the first, and it's vanished because uh, Mao Zedong, that was the president of China, the first generation, he is a father founder of China in every aspect. He was 100% pro-Arab, pro-Palestinians. Yasser Arafat was an honor guest regularly in Beijing, and it changed when Dao Xiaoping became the president. He was after Mao Zedong, there was someone else, and then Deng took over. He was very smart. He saved China. He opened China to the world, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was the main leader that changed dramatically the position of China in the world. And they realized that Israel is very strong in technology and very strong in innovation. In Chinese, it's Chongqing. And for them, the Chinese people, it's very important in order to improve their economy. Deng understood it, and he worked accordingly. And it took time, and only in January 1992, mm-hmm. we opened diplomatic relations between China and the State of Israel, our uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, David Levy, in those days, signed in January uh, '92 the uh, agreement of diplomatic uh, relation between China and the State of Israel. 
Mm-hmm. So 26 years today, 20. 20, yeah, 26, 27 years. So just to stick with the history lesson a little bit, once upon a time, there were real questions about whether Israel would fall under the sphere of the United States or that of the Soviet Union in that kind of bipolar world. That question is obviously not relevant anymore. Israel chose America long ago, and there isn't even a Soviet Union today. But we are entering a new era of international affairs. There are two superpowers again, or there will be soon, the US and China. Are they going to be competing? over Israel in a similar way to the way that America and Russia once did? It's a very delicate situation. Mm -hmm. And as an ambassador in Beijing, I always remember that the main supporter of Israel, from a strategic point, the only one is the United States of America. And I used to say to every Chinese leader that the relation between Israel and the U.S. is a cornerstone in our strategy. And all my staff said to me, Matan, you don't have to say it. You are the ambassador to China. I said, because I'm ambassador mm. to China, I would like that each one of us will remember the importance of the United States of America for Israel. In many respects, it's the job of Israel's foreign ministry, as you kind of allude to. It's the job of Israel's foreign ministry to make sure that doors remain open to Israel in both the U.S. and in China, even as the two countries now are in the early stages of a trade war. You're now on the outside of the foreign ministry, so maybe you can evaluate it for us. How is Israel doing at that job? It's The trade war is not good, not for the American, not for the Chinese. And not for the whole world. And Israel, in this aspect, is part of the whole world. (laughs) And we have to be very careful about this and to navigate accordingly by understanding the importance of China from a trade point of view, from a commerce point of view, and the deep interest between Israel and the U.S. and how the U.S. is important for us. We have to remember it all the time. It's not only a business question, right? That's kind of where we focus, where our minds immediately run to when we talk about a trade war. But there are national security issues at play when dealing with China as well, right? According to the understanding with the Americans, we are not allowed to do something with China dealing with military, dealing with national security, nothing. We are working only in a civilian arena, and nothing else of this. And some people start to ask questions when they put me as ambassador to China, a general, and they ask why a general have to be the ambassador to China. But we are very clear about it, and we are very strict about it, that we are not dealing with the Chinese with something that can be connected to national security or to national uh, military. Nothing. So I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about a day that I had in June, and I think you'll quickly see where this is going. I was in Israel on an AJC trip leading a group of university presidents around Israel, and we were meeting with other presidents of Israeli universities so that they could explore possible partnerships. So we woke up that morning in Tel Aviv. And our bus kind of wended its way through the traffic that was being caused by the light rail that's being built in Tel Aviv. And we made it to Stedov Airport, and we took off by helicopter, flying north. We went to Haifa. We flew over the port of Haifa. We landed at the Technion. 
And then we had a meeting and lunch with the president of the Technion. So that sounds like a okay, there's a helicopter ride in there, so it's not a totally mundane day, but a, a fairly mundane day, except that light rail in Tel Aviv is being built by China. The port in Haifa is potentially about to come under the ownership of a Chinese company, I think a, a company that's owned by the government of China. And the Technion has a relatively new campus in Guangdong in China. Shanto. Shanto it's in Guangdong. You're right, in Shanto in the, in the Guangdong yeah, province. province. Um, so that's a lot of kind of intermingling there. And it's intermingling that even though none of that sounds like a military thing, actually there are military implications for all of those things. Because, you know, infrastructure in any city like the light rail in Tel Aviv is important. We don't think of it that way, but it has a, a national security application. What if a Chinese company could just press a button and the light rail in Tel Aviv would shut off? The port plays host not only to several important parts of the Israeli Navy, but also occasionally to the U.S. Sixth Fleet. And the Technion, Israel's kind of MIT, there are lots of brilliant minds that have created important national security advances based there. All of that matters, right? All of that is really important and maybe a little bit threatening even. All these projects are under a basic understanding between China and Israel. All these projects were checked by our security bodies from every aspect, and everyone is understand the meaning of what you just said, and we work accordingly. If you will look at the seaports in the United States on the coast of the Pacific and the Atlantic, mm -hmm. we'll find a huge amount of Chinese equipment and Chinese people all over. In 10, the largest 10 ports in the world of cargo, seven of them, the Chinese are there, include American uh, seaports as well. So the Chinese are all over. It's not only in Israel, it's all over because it's a superpower that became stronger all the time economically. Matan, let's just close. I, I've kind of been... Um Maybe my line of questioning has been a little bit depressing, but there's excitement here, too. There's reason for excitement. So I wonder if you can just close by telling us a little bit about what are the most exciting opportunities that relations between Israel and China potentially open up for Israel and for those who care about Israel. For the Chinese, the most important thing, and it's not a secret, is technology. And technology is innovation. And they need badly the innovation mood and the technology of the Israelis in order to develop their economy. They can get it from the Americans, but America is a superpower with own interests, and it's a problem to deal with the Americans. The Israelis smaller than America, of course, and in many aspects, we are some kind of a bridge between China and the U.S. We some kind of a gate mm. between China and the U.S., and this is the main issue. The main issue is technology and innovation. And for Israel? For Israel, it's a wonderful market. Israel is a very small country with a huge capability in innovation, in technology, and we can bring our technology to the huge market of China. Therefore, Israel on one side and China on the other side, and we 
We are not competing with each other like the American compete with the Ameri- with the Chinese, but in some kind in complementary between China and the State of Israel. Well, Matan, thank you so much for sharing your immense knowledge with us on this important topic. Thank you in Mandarin. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. When you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, Manya, what will you be talking about? Well, Sefi, I know we devoted our show a few weeks ago to the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre, but I cannot stop thinking about an article I read that week in The Atlantic by my incredibly talented colleague, Emma Green, with whom I had the pleasure of celebrating Shabbat back in September. Its title haunts me, and maybe that was the point of it. Will anyone remember 11 Dead Jews? That was the headline, and the article itself was a profile of Eric Legey, the curator of a Jewish archive in Pittsburgh, who has taken on a second full-time job of curating the memorabilia and artifacts from the day of and the days that followed that horrible shooting. Artifacts include prayer books from a young man whose nearby synagogue went into lockdown during his bar mitzvah, signs, wilted dried flowers, and melted candles that line the sidewalks in front of the Tree of Life building, picket signs from President Trump's visit a few days later. It felt like archiving the ocean, he told Emma. I want to read the ending of Emma's piece, which I hope listeners will go read in full, either now or months from now. Months from now may make it even more poignant. From dust to dust, a century hence, no one who witnessed the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and its aftermath will be around to explain why they loved Squirrel Hill. If it survives, Legi's archive will be all that's left to tell a more textured story. Depending on what comes next, those stones and signs and notes of grief could tell radically different stories of a rare aberration in American Jewish history or the restarting of an ancient clock. Emma is not only a beautiful writer, she has spent a lot of days in Pittsburgh in the past year trying to get her head and her heart around this tragedy and what it means for our country and the Jewish community. She's written other pieces, too. And, Sefi, I encourage you and all of our listeners out there to look them up and follow her work. Well, I am one of Emma Green's biggest fans. She's one of a startling number of people at The Atlantic who I consider every piece they write a must-read. So thank you for bringing that to your Shabbat table. In 2015, several members of Congress got together and with the support of AJC established the Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Antisemitism. Currently, 174 members of Congress are a part of the task force representing both parties and districts all across the country. AJC is continuously working to get even more members to join, and you can go to AJC.org slash task force to make sure that your representative is a member. Last week, again, supported by AJC, Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada and Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma created a bipartisan task force for combating antisemitism in the Senate. Their words, as they launched the group, give me a little hope that we might be able to prevent anti-Semitism from becoming just one more partisan issue, just one more useful way to take pot shots at your political opponents. Here's what they said. Today, the two of us, a practicing Jewish Democrat from Nevada and a devoted Christian Republican from Oklahoma, are calling on our colleagues to set aside the labels, the bickering, and the grandstanding to join together to take on one of the most disturbing trends of our time. We stand united in the common goal of defeating hate and combating the violent scourge of anti-Semitism. And we at AJC stand with them. That's our show. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 
you can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod.